Good morning, fellowship. Lovely to see your beautiful faces here this morning. And people are wrapped right around me today, so that's lovely. Uh, I want to say, uh, my name is Ray, one of the pastors here. If you're here for the first time, a warm welcome. Online welcome uh, in the overflow and in the family room. Look, uh, so glad that you've joined us. Uh, I've just come back from three days in Iraq and uh, had a special time being with uh, brothers and sisters there and uh, opening up the word with them. But I was, rem- I was told that there are basically around 4,000 born-again believers in Iraq. I was shocked by that figure. There are, there are more people in fellowship. So if you don't mind, I feel the burden to come before our Father in heaven and pray for the people of Iraq, especially given the way in which they have been ravaged with so much suffering and war in, uh, over these last few decades. Father in heaven, we come before you, uh, perhaps only aware of that name, Iraq, and that country, But Father, those people are precious to you, every one of them made in your image. And we just pray, Father, that you will be with them, be with our brothers and sisters in Christ there. And we pray more and more will come to know how magnificent you are as a saviour who has come to save a people by grace through Christ alone for your glory and their good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, behind every New Year's resolution is that desire for self-control. Self-control. It's a big theme in the book of Titus. You know, lose weight, um, sometimes gain weight, but for most of us it's lose weight. Uh, quit smoking, drink less, read more, whatever it is. As, we, uh, as I said a couple of weeks ago, who is the hardest person to lead? It's your self, yeah. Um, controlling this thing, wow, that's a, that's a full-time job. And no one needed more self-control than the people of Crete, to which Paul was writing to to via Titus. And uh, we've got that lovely, really offensive quote from from, uh, someone who had written it 600 years earlier. In chapter 1, verse 12, here is a person from Crete reflecting on the culture of Crete. Even one of their own prophets has said, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. Now, normally, normally you want to be a cultural learner, not a cultural critic. That would be a good thing. Um, uh, you know, learning to appreciate other cultures. We're often hard on others and soft on our own people. Um, but, uh, but, but there's a time when we place our own culture under the word of God and allow it to be sifted through. And, uh, and here you have one person from Crete reflecting on the culture and wow, it lacks self-control at a exponential level. They weren't just liars, they're always liars. Um, They weren't just gluttons, they were lazy gluttons. So I thought, you know, it's probably good for an Australian to confess Australian sins. So on the list, I I got some statistics very briefly. 60% in Australia of senior students have been drunk. 95% of women confess to gossip. 99% of men have seen porn. I'm pretty sure there's a 1% liar out there. And 100% of Australians lie. Now, I look at that data and I think that pretty much captures a lot of cultures, but I can only confess my own sins, our our nation's sins. But really, when you think of self-control, it's not like the issue for a drug addict. It's actually an issue for everyone. I mean, think about self-control. It's the last of the fruit of the spirit. It actually is to permeate itself into every relationship. You need self-control when you're seeking to love a wife who doesn't respect you. When you're seeking to uh, love a wife, uh, sorry, uh, respect a husband who is not tender to you and doesn't listen to you. 
to honor parents who exasperate you, or perhaps children who exasperate you, as the case may be. Working hard for a boss who's just downright mean to you, or doesn't pay you month by month. Paul says to Titus, teach the congregations in, in Crete to be less like their culture, more like Jesus. And so it begins in chapter 2, verse 1. You, however, must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. The sound doctrine there is actually the gospel of grace. Uh, teaching what is appropriate is teaching a life worthy of the gospel. So teach the gospel and live a life and to teach a life worthy of the gospel. I think that is what he's saying. Both things are there. The ministry of the word is not to finish here. It's to percolate its way through the whole church, as we'll see. Because if it takes a village to raise a child, then it takes a church to raise a child of God uh, with self-control. And so Paul, everyone needs to play their part. And so now Paul is speaking to different groups within the church, churches. And he says this to older men, verse 2. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, and sound in faith, in love, and endurance. Now, I remember Professor Don Carson, after his father had died, he wrote a book based on his father's diary. And he read in his father's diary, his father reflected that getting older, he was getting more grumpier. And then he said in his diary, good Lord, deliver me from the sins of old men. <laughs> and I was so inspired by that at the age of 60, I wrote an article and there were 14 sins that I identified that marked old men. Temperate. Worthy of respect. That is to say, don't assume respect because you've got grey hair. Act in a way that deserves respect. Don't check out before, uh, um, before you die. Make your best years in front of you. Keep on working on bearing fruit of the Spirit. But make it a lifelong commitment till the day you breathe your last. You know, getting older, you get into bad habits. I got out of the habit of using the indicator when I drive. I've been doing it for 40 years. You know, I've done it enough times. You don't use the indicator. You have car crashes. It's not a good thing. You can't check out even when you get to my age. And then to older women, Paul says, verse 3, Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderous or addicted to too much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can urge younger women to love their husbands and children to be, there it is, self-controlled and pure, be busy and at home and to be kind and to be subject to their husbands so that no one will malign the word of God. I'll never forget hearing the words of one younger woman who lamented the fact, she said this, and I quote, all the older Christians she knew were grumpy, thankless, and critical. So much for old, the older you get, the better you get. I remember seeing a movie. It's, an, it's a bit of a classic now, Steel Magnolias. And uh, there's, a, there's a woman, an older woman, who was accused of being always angry. She said, I'm not angry. I've just been in a bad mood for 40 years. <laughs> just been in a bad mood for 40 years. That's what the church calls respectable sins, but there's nothing respectable about it. What's significant is the word given to younger men. Look at verse 6. Similarly, encourage the younger men to be, there it is, self-control. I love the fact that everyone else gets lots of words, but it's, you know, young men, there's only one word for you from the Lord, self-control. 
Don't spend your first year's wage on a car you can't afford. Self-control. Don't propose on the first date to the first woman who you go out with. Self-control. Don't stay into delayed adolescence at 27 where you're spending all your nights watching Xbox porn and having your mum provide you food in the bedroom. Self-control. It's time to grow up. This teaching uh, is to happen by word and example. Now, that's true for every demographic, but it begins with the pastors. Um, What we learn is so much caught rather than just taught. So in verse 7, Paul writes... In everything, set them to Titus, but it's really to every leader and then to every parent. And in everything, set them an example, a pattern, by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned. Um, I heard that Harvard Business Review, very respected journal, said that 95% of people can't apply a principle. And it's true, you know, whenever anyone tells me something, I think, hey, do you have an example of that? Do you have a for instance that I can't go from the idea and translate it into an application in my life? That's why sermons without examples are usually bad sermons. The word of God from a hypocrite is usually even worse because we need to see the walk and the talk running together. My dad wasn't a perfect father. He had a short temper. It comes with the culture, (laughs) Maltese. But I tell you, I, uh, I thank God that I never saw him drunk. We always had wine on the table with Maltese, Mediterranean. Never saw him drunk, ever. Um, I thank God that he could say sorry. I thank God that he worked hard and, and uh, he always uh, led us to church week by week. Um, I, I, I think about some things that I feel strongly like. I, I hate vandalism and revenge and vengeance. I think, where did I get that from? Well, I get that from the Bible, but... Before I even opened the Bible, I got it from my dad. Uh, and I'll tell you why. There was a one moment in my life. I was about seven or eight. My brother's about five years older. We were pulling out some weeds in a back paddock uh, that was enclosed, a thing called pigweed. We had to put it on a trailer to get it out of there. And at the end of about two to three hours of hard work, my brother got me to open the gate. He drove the tractor and the trailer out. I closed the gate. And as I closed the gate, the blighter took off. Now, I was so angry at my brother that I cut across all the paddocks to get to the house and we had a patch of kind of our own little mini farm, lettuces and spinach, and I saw them and I was angry at my brother and I started pulling them all up from all of them, lettuce, tomatoes, all of them out from the ground. And then I felt this shadow come upon me and I looked up. Oh, no, the day of judgment has arrived. It was my dad. And like I said, my dad hates vengeance and vandalism. And out came the belt. To be fair, he often threatened me with rather than actually used it. And when I saw the belt, I ran to one place that was safety, Mama. And I went into the kitchen and I'm... And he, and he's chasing me around the kitchen table. And my mum's saying, leave him alone, leave him alone. But why is it that I... Now, I'm sure he could have done that better, granted. <laughs> And yet, I'm so thankful to God that that really mattered to him. Vengeance is a bad thing. Vandalism is a bad thing. And he really expressed it to me very clearly. Now, everyone needs to be involved in... Oh, sorry, let me just say, remember, it takes a village to raise a child. It takes a whole church to raise a child of God with self-control. 
And Paul is saying sound doctrine, which is healthy doctrine. It's the same word, sound, healthy, is used of the woman who is hemorrhaging for 12 years that Jesus healed. Sound doctrine is healthy doctrine that leads to healthy churches. And, and everyone is to play their part. And so you see here that Jesus teaches Paul, Paul teaches Titus, Titus teaches the elders of the churches, they teach the older, the older teach the younger. It's really quite beautiful, really. It happens in our church in many ways, informally. I hope it happens informally, I know it does. But it happens formally, even in small groups when we gather together. I really can't commend enough if you can, whether it's online or face-to-face, be part of a small group. Turn the large crowd here on Sunday into a place where you're known and you know others, where you are loved and, and are loved in a meaningful way and can love others. Uh, Women Connect is a beautiful expression of that. Uh, my friend who serves in a church in Sydney visited my wife and I, and she went to Women's Connect. And when she came back, she said, oh, Ray, I have to lift up my game. Those women are very impressive. And I thought, wow, that was a real lovely compliment of those women, those sisters. Because women's ministry is every woman's responsibility. Men's ministry is every man's responsibility. And uh, if I could just flag it for the future, uh, we, we're going to pilot a, an equivalent version to Women's Connect uh, on Monday nights, but stay tuned more for that. But whether you're in a small, small group or not, take hold of the words of Peggy Tabor Millen. I don't know her, but I love her quote. And she said this, We never touch people so lightly that we don't leave a trace. We never touch people so... That is... Even a passing conversation has enough to make an impact on another person. The question is, what kind of an impact do you want to make? And it can be a listening ear. It can be a word of encouragement. It can be even perhaps sometimes a word of correction. What kind of trace do you want to leave in the life of another? What kind of mark do you want to leave in the life of another? I know fellowship, we're a youngish church, so you think older teaching younger, I'm not 60, it's not for me. But really, we want 30-somethings teaching 20-somethings. We want people in their 20s teaching teenagers. Um, I, I went to uh, a, a dating seminar for the young adults. In fact, it wasn't just for the young adults. And uh, it was, I just loved the way in which there were about 85 gathered, wanting to hear about how to think about marriage and dating in a Christian God-like way. And we had the older, and by older, I don't just mean me and my wife who were there, but people in their 20s and 30s passing on their experiences to others. It was fleshing out what we're seeing here in Titus. At my son's wedding, uh, I remember Kevin, his, his best man, saying in the speech that apart from my father, he said that Kevin, and my son said of Kevin, he, he is the man who had the biggest impact in his Christian life. My son now is a senior pastor of a church in Australia. And apart from his family, it was Kevin who invested in his life. And not just for a week or a month. Uh, in, our, in my previous church, the custom for the youth leaders is they, they start with the kids at age 12 and, and they journey with them till they're 17 and 18. It's a transformative relationship with their speaking life. Any parent here, if you want to be a wise parent, know this. When your children get to about 12, your influence starts to diminish and you need others, especially younger men and women, who are speaking into their life. Uh, 
what you want to say, but they need to hear it from other voices. So there am I in Abu Dhabi, and I'm hearing, I'm talking to this, he's an ambassador from a South American country, and he's telling me, Fellowship, I drive every Sunday to Dubai to drop my daughter off at Youth Fellowship. I said, really? She said, yes, she loves it. And I said, you are a great father because you've worked out that you need other voices other than your own to speak life and the word of God into your children's hearts. He was a great father. So, brothers and sisters, if you've got children, take them to Kids Church. Uh, They do a wonderful work as they're bringing up. They're learning exactly what we're learning as adults, and we want you all to go home and do talking the things of God together when you get home. So make sure you get here early enough to get them into the kids' program and the youth ministry. Why? Because if it takes a village to raise a child, it takes the church of God to raise a child of God with self-control. Self-control. Me telling you to get self-control is about as useless as telling you to fly to the moon. You know, the thing that actually makes Christianity different from every other faith is grace. And grace is the key to self-control. That's what Paul says in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say what? No No to ungodliness and worldly passions. And to live what? There it is again. Self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. So our desire to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives is kind of sandwiched between two realities. Jesus' first appearing 2,000 years ago brought grace. Jesus' second appearing brings glory. And that's how you to frame your life as you seek to engage in saying no to sin and becoming more like Christ. The first appearance of Jesus brought salvation to all. But the purpose of Jesus' coming wasn't simply to forgive you, wonderful as that is. It was actually to transform you so you can say no to sin, no to ungodliness, no to self-centeredness, and yes to Jesus. But I think that can only happen. And remember, by grace of God, we mean the undeserved love of God directed towards us when God sent his son while we were enemies. And I think that's why John Piper's right in this connection between grace and wanting to become more like Jesus. He says this, You can only fight a sin that is already forgiven. You only engage in the battle with sin knowing that the war and sin's already been dealt with. And that's why what Paul does is he wants us to look in two directions. He wants us firstly to look back on that first Good Friday. I don't know, when you think about the past, we're all kind of shaped by the past, aren't we? We're trying to get over it or try to prove people wrong from the past that have said words that are death words to us. But I wonder, when you think about your past and the past, where do you go to? Do you you go to that sort of shameful behavior that, still condemns you, that's still ringing in your ears and conscience? Do you go back to that painful experience of suffering that sort of broke you, never quite been the same ever since, perhaps traumatised you? Do you go back to those kind of superficial successes that you kind of hang your self-esteem on? What the Apostle Paul wants us to do, what Jesus wants us to do, is to look back to the first appearing, to keep our eyes on target, 
on Jesus as we look up on the cross, knowing that payment was made for sin way before any, any, anything was required of you. It's like all the payment for your failures was kind of made up front. So you enter into this life knowing, wow, it's already been dealt with. But the hardest thing God has ever had to do for me is already done, and it's been done once and for all. That your sails are filled with the grace of God and the love of God, enabling you to become eager to do good. You know, he who is forgiven much, he who is forgiven much, can you remember how it goes, the sentence? He who is forgiven much loves much. Look back. Look back. If you're wrestling with self-control, I mean, you can do a whole lot of things that I'm sure are going to be helpful, but the, the motivating, transformative thing is the grace of God. And, and, if the, and if the death of Jesus for you still doesn't profoundly impact you, ask God's Spirit to open your eyes to the breadth and depth of God's love for you in Christ Jesus, that you may take hold of it, because that is the empowering agent in your life. A heart filled with so much thankfulness and joy and gratitude that you want to please your Father in heaven, that you want to do good for Jesus, that you don't want to grieve the Spirit of God. Look back, but then look forward. You know, at Movement Day last week, we asked a question of the people who were gathered there. And the question was this, where do you... Where do you find your headspace the majority of the time? I was a little bit surprised by the data, and this is the data. Uh, 11% said they tend to dwell in the past. 35% are consumed in the present. 55% dream about the future. So I wonder, what is it about the future? And, and I want to say the Christian life is actually all three. We're looking back, we're looking in the moment, and we're looking towards the future. But when you think of the future, what is it about the future that you hope to happen that inspires you? Are you waiting for the love of your life to walk through the door and transform your life? Is it that job or that business that you're hoping to get that still is out of reach? Is it to have Taylor Swift come to Dubai? <laughs> Any Swifties here? Just put up your hand. Nothing to be ashamed of now. Any Swifties? None? Yes, I got one. Got another? Come on. Yeah, I got another. A little bit. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, she needs to come to Dubai because she's obviously struggling financially and she could do with all, with all the revenue she can see. She's only earned a billion dollars in her last concert tours. Oh, bless her. We don't just look back, we look forward. We look forward to the greatest event that will ever take place. The unveiling of our Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 13 again. To live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age while we wait. For what? For the blessed hope. What's that? The appearing. Here's the second use of the word appearing. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus came the first time to save us. Oh, but Jesus will come a second time to take us home. Why is it that we say no to sin? We say no to sin so that we can say yes to Jesus and one day we will stand before the Jesus we said no to sin for. We're not wasting our time. All those choices you made for Jesus, 
All the costs that you carried that came with being a follower of his. All the burdens you bore. All the pleasures of sin you denied yourself. Once you stand before our great God and Saviour Jesus, you will then be able to say in a way that you probably can't even say now, wow, it really, he really is worth it. For now, that's almost you live by that truth by faith. But I tell you, there will not be a scary of doubt in your soul. It was so worth it. See, why am I faithful to my wife? I love my wife. But I'm faithful to my wife for one reason. is because Jesus is going to come back. And he is worth it. My wife's worth it, but he's even more worth it. You notice there's a blessed hope. It's described. Now, the problem with us is we say the word hope. We're thinking, I hope I get a job. I hope I fall in love. You know, fingers crossed, touch wood, all those kind of expressions. Because it's uncertain, right? But whenever the, word, the, whenever the Bible uses the word hope, it's always, always about the future. And it's always, always guaranteed. It's a guaranteed outcome. And you notice here, what kind of a hope is it? It's a blessed hope. Now, the problem with that word is it kind of means a lot and means nothing. But embedded into that word is what? Happy hope. You know, our God is a blessed God. He's a happy God. He's intrinsically happy. Father loves the son. Son loves the father. Spirit loves the father. I mean, they're having a great time. They're happy. God is happy. He's a blessed God. And the hope that he brings is a happy hope. When we stare at him, we will, be st- we will be overwhelmed by the sheer beauty and splendor and glory of our, and you notice what he's called, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is the highest description of Jesus in the Bible. And there it is. Now, people say, well, is Jesus God? Yeah, he is our great God and Savior. And there it is in black and white. Let me ask you, when was the happiest time? When was the happiest moment of your life? Actually, why don't you tell the person next to you? I'll give you about 20 seconds. And those of you online, just the person sitting here next to, just, I want to take you back to that moment, the happiest moment in your life. Okay. Since I've got tinnitus and I'm hard of hearing, I'm going to ask people in the front rows, give me, give me a, a moment in your life that was particularly happy. I need someone with a bit of boldness, otherwise I'm going to look like an idiot in the next... <laughs> Who wants to put up that? Yes. Uh, the happiest moment in my life was when I realised that my faith was actually in Jesus and it wasn't in other people. So like, I actually trusted in Wow, what an answer is that. When my faith was in Jesus... I'm giving that a 10 out of 10. I, I would exactly say that the, 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 the day I accepted Christ was euphoric for me, and I, it was particularly overwhelmingly filled with joy, yes. What else? It doesn't have to be a super spiritual answer. <laughs> I mean, that was... Honeymoon. Honeymoon, okay. <laughs> Notice the male and not the female <laughs> Yes, the honeymoon. I always say, oh, I go, don't, don't, don't. come on. So, self-control, Ray, leave it alone. 
Leave it alone. You rarely see that from this preacher, so be thankful. Someone said, uh, when I first held my wife's hand uh, this, at 9 o'clock, I thought, wow. That, he was just like, I think it was the moment when he fell in love with her. And, uh, well, I just want to say, okay, you've got your moments, you know, a child being born, your wedding day, whatever it is. Now, remember that. Now, when the unveiling takes place and Jesus appears, multiply that by a factor of a trillion, that happiness when you're literally jumping out of your glorified skin and you stand before Jesus in a new creation. And unlike the moments of happiness we describe, which fade away to a degree, it'll be perfect one day, perfect the next. Set your eyes upon Jesus in the past, in the present, but also in the future. Jesus, who came to save us, will come again to take us to be with him. That's why Martin Luther said, we live the Christian life as though Christ died yesterday, rose today, and will come back tomorrow. Sandwich it right up. I live every moment in light of those realities. Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. And what Paul does, is he sends us back to the past again in verse 14, as though Christians are on this endless cycle of past, present, and future experience. In verse 14, he says, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Uh, I went to Iraq, as I said, last couple of days, and I was at the airport uh, at at the Terminal 2, and a lovely Iraqi man uh, offered me his seat because we were sitting in front of McDonald's, and, um, and then he'd gone to get a drink, uh, with, with the straw in it. He hadn't, he hadn't drunk from it. And he's done, he did something I have never seen before. I am a stranger to him. He, did not, he has not yet drunk his thing of Coke. And he offers it to me to drink from his straw. I have never in 63 years of living on this earth had a stranger offered me a drink from a straw that they're going to drink from afterwards. Wow. I'm still in awe of that. (laughs) Jesus gave a lot more than that. He gave himself. He had nothing less to give. He gave it all. He, He gave it so that we would be set free from shame and guilt and fear and the penalty of sin and the power of sin. He did it to make us his precious own, his beloved. And he did it to inspire us to be eager to do good. See, what bogs us down as we battle with self-control is that we keep remembering what God has forgotten, our sin. He says, I don't know what you're talking about. And we keep forgetting what he will remember, our good works. The grace of God, it is just such a dynamic power in your life that is so neglected. It's what brought us to Christ. It's what keeps us wanting to become more like Christ. And when we're tempted to wander away, it'll bring us back. Um, my friend's daughter said to her mom, Mom, I'm not coming to church with you anymore. I am not following Jesus anymore. Whoa. I booked a ticket for Thailand. I'm going to a Buddhist retreat. (laughs) Wow. So she's at the Buddhist retreat. And the facilitator of the retreat says, Now I want everyone to empty their minds. Empty your minds. Now, what image comes to you? What image comes to you? And she said, 
the image of Christ on the cross came to me. Wow. And then the facilitator said, now, whatever image you have in front of you, as, as he's talking to the people in retreat, let it move all over your body. Imagine it moving. Where does that image stop? And she said, the image of Christ on the cross stopped right next to her heart. And then the, the, the head of the retreat said, now, listen carefully. What tune is coming to you as you think about that image? And she starts hearing, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. She said, mom, I'm coming home. I'm coming to church. I'm following Jesus. But not because she told me. <laughs> she had to throw that one in. See, the beauty of the grace of God he never lets go. We keep remembering what he has forgotten. We keep forgetting what he will remember, and it's us. You know, knowing his grace makes us want to say no to sin, but knowing we will be with him makes us want to be like him. That's why you've got to keep setting your minds on the past, at the cross, and on the future, on his return. And that's what fellowship has been built on, that gospel grace of God, the the gospel of our Lord Jesus, the gospel of God's undeserved love. How many lives have been changed among the 120 nations that we have? So many different backgrounds. But in one sense, it's the same story. Lives changed by grace, not law. Law will tell you what's right and wrong, but it'll never motivate you. Lives changed to make Jesus look good. I just think of... I suppose as a pastor, I get front row seats to see the kind of change people make more often. But, you know, you see people telling you, you know, the greedy becoming generous, the, the liars becoming trustworthy truth tellers, the promiscuous becoming holy, uh, addicts becoming self-controlled, uh, the violent becoming safe, uh, gossips becoming evangelists, workaholics finding their rest in Christ, the lazy actually wanting to work, the unforgiving, wanting to show mercy, the self-righteous becoming humble. And when we say no to sin, we're doing it in the presence. And when we're seeking to be eager to do good, it's so that we can make Jesus look good. That's where it kind of, this story ends there, to the glory of God. So in chapter 2, verse 10, and he's speaking to bond servants, but really he could be speaking to anyone. He says, to show that they may be fully trusted, I thought that's a lovely thing to aspire for. Someone who is self-controlled is someone who is trustworthy. With what purpose in mind? So that in every way, they, the outsiders who look on, may, may so that, sorry, that they, the, the, those who say yes to Jesus, may make the teaching about God, our Saviour, attractive. Our job is to make Jesus look good in Dubai. So they see you and they oh, I like what I see. Who's driving your engine? <laughs> Who's behind you? Who makes you you? Because I like what I see. I heard this story the other day here in Dubai. A woman comes to pick up her son from school, five, six-year-old boy. Uh, they've just come back from a school uh, excursion and uh, no son. They don't know where he is. Mum's frantic. Five, ten minutes, twenty minutes. The principal's apologising. The teacher who has lost the child is, is definitely panicking. She knows her job's on the line. 20 minutes, 30, 25 minutes, 30 minutes, still no son. Oh my goodness, all the parents have picked up their child and taken. She's still there. Where is my son? Where is my son? 
Anyway, as it turned out, the child was left behind on the bus. The bus went back to the depot. The child's asleep in the back in the hot sun. When they finally found him, it was, oh, she was so relieved. Her instinct was to make the school pay. She is an influencer on social media in the area of parenting. She has many people who listen to her. She also works for the government. She could have caused a lot of trouble for that school. But she felt the Lord saying to her, let it go. Show grace. You've received grace. Show grace. So she said to the principal, don't worry. I'm not going to cause any trouble as long as you make that teacher pay. No, she didn't say. She said, I'm not going to, I'm not going to cause any trouble as long as that teacher is protected and doesn't lose her job. Now, everyone knew that woman loved Jesus. Do you not think she made Jesus look good? Oh, a sweet aroma. So beautiful. So beautiful indeed. Takes a village to raise a child. Takes a whole church to raise a child of God with self-control that shine like stars in the night. You know, we're going to transition out of the Lord's Supper where we're going to be reminded of that grace of God in very concrete ways as we take of the bread and drink of the cup. But, you know, we know that every battle towards sin isn't a no, it's a yes. And we've collapsed and failed to be the people God wants us to be and what you and I want to be. And so I thought we'd start by actually having a time of confession. So let's go to the throne of grace and confess our sins, knowing that we will find mercy in our time of need. I'll invite the band to join me at this point up the front. Father in heaven, Father of all grace, we have broken your law, we have broken your heart, we have grieved your spirit. We confess that we have failed to love you with all of our heart, we failed to love others, And we've even failed to love our enemies. We have clearly lacked self-control. And so, Lord, we want to say thank you, Jesus, that you came into this world to save us by your grace. We want to say thank you, Jesus, that you're going to come back a second time to take us home and to allow us to enter into your glory and to be glorified with you. And we want to ask, Lord, help us by your spirit. Help us by your grace to say no to sin. To be that child of God that you want us to be. To be zealous to do good works by the power of your spirit. And all for your glory, Lord, in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Friends, if you're a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, the meal we're about to share in is for you. And as the bread and the cup are distributed, take it, hold off, we're going to sing, and then with a word of explanation, we'll eat and drink in remembrance. If you're not a follower of Jesus, we appreciate the fact that you don't want to pretend. So just let the cup and the bread pass you by. But we do look forward to the day that you will be able to join us and eat of the bread and drink of the cup as part of the family of God. But perhaps today is the day you believe God is calling you home. And today for you is the day of salvation. So why don't you take of the bread and drink of the cup as your kind of renewed heart's desire to serve Jesus and receive him as your Lord and Saviour.
So remain seated and uh, we'll sing the next song and uh, I'll come back and with a word of explanation we'll eat and drink in remembrance that Christ loved us by dying for us and purchasing a place for us in the age to come. Let's sing our wonderful God. Father's Father's arms are open wide. That's the posture of our Father in heaven towards us. The prodigal sons and daughters who come home. We come to the throne of grace with confidence and boldness. Why? Because he sits on a throne of grace. And there we will find grace and mercy in our time of need. You are God's beloved. That's one of the ways in which God describes his family, the loved ones. And this bread and this cup that you carry in your hand are tokens, pledges of that love, symbols that take us in lots of directions, as the passage today reminded us of. But let me read to you Titus 2.14. Jesus Christ, who gave... When do we say it together? I think it's one of those verses. It's such a beautiful verse. Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself 
a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. I think of the, the bread and the cup and the Lord's Supper and it takes me first, takes us back to that first Good Friday where Jesus gave himself for us. He withheld nothing from us. That the life we live in this body, we live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. But we look up and see the God who, God the Father who loved us so much that he gave his one and only Son that whoever would believe in him may not perish but have everlasting life. Do you feel the love? And we proclaim Christ's death as we look to the future until he comes again when he will be revealed in all his glory and with those open arms welcome us into his kingdom. And we look out onto the body of Christ and we commit that if we take this bread and this cup, we will seek to put right any relationship that's not right. Because God does not want us to receive grace without offering grace to others, especially those within the household of faith. And then we look within with hearts that are so thankful to God for showing mercy to us. So brothers and sisters, take the bread and eat in remembrance that Christ gave himself up for you to redeem you and to set you free, to be adopted into his family and be thankful. And as you drink of the cup, drink it in remembrance that Christ's precious blood purified us from all sin, cleansing us, liberating us from shame and guilt and fear and allowing us to feel beloved as part of his people eager to do good. So drink it in remembrance that Christ's blood was shed for you and be thankful. Father of all grace, our sails are filled with your love and your mercy as we glide through this life with all the challenges, Lord. We are just so overwhelmed by the fact that you are a God who loves us and has shown a grace and an undeserved love that is truly unmerited, a love we can't lose a love that has wrapped itself around us, a love that inspires us to be eager to do good so that we can make Jesus look good. Oh, Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit and by the grace of God, may this week be a life marked with self-control as we enter into every relationship, wanting to leave a mark for Jesus, wanting to leave a trace that adds value to another. We have been blessed. May we be a blessing to others. We have received grace. May we show grace to others. We have received love, Lord. May we display that love to others, be they our friends or our enemies, and all for your glory in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Amen indeed. Let's praise our God and let's return the cups to the aisles as we praise our God.